Hi, my name is Jeff and I'm Managing Director at ShieldPay and your host of the Shieldcast. The Shieldcast is our podcast where ShieldPay friends, partners and clients come to tell us about their amazing products, share industry insights and generally talk about things that we hope listeners will find interesting. In this series of the Shieldcast, we want to look at the transaction management lifecycle. I will be in discussions with legal tech companies, legal practitioners and others who are involved in the transactional process from the planning phase to the building phase and through to the closing phase. So much time is spent in legal tech talking about the role of AI and process automation. We felt it was important to give transaction management some much needed airtime. Welcome to the Shieldcast Transaction Management Series. On today's episode of the Shieldcast, we welcome Daniel Grant-Smith, Head of Engagement at Legatix. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. Dan is a fellow lawyer uh, turned legal techie. Having trained at Hogan Lovells for five years in the PE and M&A teams, he saw the full breadth of transaction types, sizes and complexities from billion-dollar deals to seed financings. He then went on to do an MBA at Cambridge Judge University Business School and then embarked on a career in legal tech, which is a very good idea compared to staying in private practice, but we'll touch on that, I'm sure, over the course of this discussion. Look forward to it. We had a chance to talk to the other Daniel Porras of Legatix in a previous episode, and we touched on a number of issues around adoption of legal tech. But this Daniel has brought some real research behind it, and I'm pleased to talk to him about this in much more detail, as well as talk about your recent report and white paper that you've just published, The Barrier to Legal Tech Adoption, which is going to be a large part of what we're going to talk about today. So that's super exciting. In this series, we are talking about how technology has impacted the transaction management lifecycle. So adoption of technology is pretty key to all of that. So this should be very interesting and very insightful. Daniel, again, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And thanks very much for the comprehensive lead-in. <laughs> I've done some homework and you gave me some insight on what's been going on, so it wasn't too difficult. For those that haven't listened to previous episodes and don't know Legatix, please give me the brief pitch of Legatix and what does being head of engagement at Legatix mean? Sure. So very simply, Legatix is a transaction management platform. And essentially what it allows you to do is lawyers live in lists. So lawyers manage their transactions and their processes in Word, in Excel, using a list format, and that is then supported by entire constellation of emails, phone calls, of instant messages, and it quickly becomes very hard to manage. So it's very hard to stay on top of the process. You're exchanging multiple versions of the updated table, and when you're dealing with processes at, at massive size and scale, it's very easy for things to get lost. So what Legatix does is it allows you to create digital versions of those lists. On the platform, you can update different items that need to be completed. You can upload documents, you can collaborate with the other side and everything updates in real time. So everyone gets a permanent status of the transaction at any one given point. And in doing so, it increases efficiency, increases transparency and de-risks and also hopefully makes the transaction less painful for, for everyone. Great. Well, that's, that sounds, as I've said before to you and to other Dan, that it would have been a godsend to have something like that when I was uh, working in a private practice. So, uh, you know, really pleased that solutions like yours are, are, are available now. But what does now being head of engagement mean? How does that mean your interaction with law firms and etc.? How, how does that sort of work? Yeah, so the engagement team looks after 
existing relationships with our customers. So we tend to think of the customers in, in, in two buckets, the existing account management aspect of it, which is what engagement does, kind of user-focused element, support and direct user feedback, which is customer success. On the engagement side, what we're really focused on is just making sure that the law firms we work with are deriving the most value that they can from the platform. So we're really zeroed in on making sure that adoption is increasing, that there are no roadblocks, that they're getting exactly what they expected from the platform, that we've thought about all the possible use cases that they could use it for and generally things are you know, proceeding how they expect. So it dovetails very nicely with some of the adoption research and, and the things that I was looking at before joining. Sure. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, it'd be interesting you know, for listeners to hear a bit about the research you did prior to obviously Vigatics very briefly, but then also you know, tell us about the report and how it came about, what was the motivation for it and, and yeah, sort of a, a, a review of that. Yeah, sure. From my perspective, before joining when I was studying, I, I looked at the adoption of legal technology and I talked to really as many stakeholders in the industry as, as would talk to me about the present state of their use of legal technology and kind of what they saw the issues were and what they thought could be done to get past any of those issues. The Innovate project that we've done is much, much broader than that, but continues along some of those themes. And so Legatics got funding um, in 2019 from Innovate to really look at the, the use of legal technology and in some ways, specifically AI, and try and understand why there's a bit of a, a gap between kind of all of this fantastic technology and, and some of the usage of it. The project was, was split between two things. One was the side which we'll, we'll talk about in more detail today, which was looking at the behavioural aspects of that gap. So thinking about what are the specific barriers that, that exist in law firms that means technology's not being used and how can they be circumvented? And we worked with a number of law firms in, in order to diagnose that. We worked with those firms on a on an individual basis, conducting workshops with their lawyers and interviews with their partners and preparing um, reports for those firms that they could review. The second element is looking again at, at that gap and thinking that part of the reason for that gap is perhaps because some of the legacy AI tools aren't incredibly easy to use. Often they, they require a bit of a village to put in place, lots of um, infrastructure and, and systems. Models need to be trained. People need to be proficient um, with the use of the software. You might need certain people employed specifically to look at the use of the software. And they can often be a bit, a bit scary to use, a bit intimidating. And so the idea was that we would just produce straight out of the package AI solutions that could be used immediately and embed them within the Legatic software. So really trying to look at things like autocomplete of sentences in Gmail. I remember that coming out and thinking what a brilliant feature and also how does it know all this and how can it do it so accurately? Um, I'm not sure we'll get to, to that level, but that's very much the intention is the idea that it will be immediately usable by, by lawyers. Things like you know, if you upload a, a fully signed document, it will recognize the parties, it will recognize the signature pages and, and that will link in with our signing tool or our input tool can work on a, a greater range of documents and can recognize more language and indexing of different types. How interesting. So going, I think one of those the points you mentioned around was the adoption and then how people actually use that and the deliver, the, the delivery of those that legal technology within a law firm and, and who uses it. So it was, I found that quite an interesting part of your report was around that I think it was something like 95% of all respondents thought that adoption of legal tech was crucial to the commercial success of the firm. Yet I think you then have the total opposite, that is that many of the respondents also said that they didn't have time to, to incorporate or get involved with legal technology in their day-to-day -day practices. That's, that sounds crazy. They, they totally know that it's, gonna, it's needed, but then on the flip side, it's 
or we don't have time to implement it. So how, you know, what were the drivers, what did the research say about what the drivers to that and how, what your report was about practical steps, what practical steps were there to address this kind of uh, gap? Yeah, absolutely. And I should just, building on what I quickly said is that obviously that the reports that we did for these individual law firms were synthesised into a single report, which is where all these kind of um, insights are coming from. And I think, yeah, I think it, it was one of the key things that I found doing the research and producing the report is that a lot of the time the understanding is there. There's an awareness that there is a commercial need and there's an understanding that the industry needs to innovate with some of its uses of, of technology and some of the ways that it, it practiced law. But I think the the problem is the barriers come in kind of that the practical element. So if you look at things like lack of time, I think that's becoming even more um, of a problem now. It feels like that lawyers in general are massively over capacity at the moment. And, and if you're lacking time, it becomes very hard to think about a process that you've never used before or a tool that you may not have complete faith in and then dedicate some time to learn that, which is, again, out of your control in order to take it up on a transaction that, that might be you know, incredibly valuable and there's a lot of pressure on you to deliver. So I think we're certainly seeing that as a problem. People just don't have the kind of headspace to, to even think about using it. I think also it's not been a, a priority. I think there was a, a quote that we had, someone said, lawyers get paid for time, not, not ideas. And having thinking about the legal tech isn't something you can charge for. So people tend to have skipped past it. And I think that also comes down to it. I think it's not just time, it's also thinking of the priority of it. I think that's really interesting because the what is what is the role of the lawyer? It's and, and the incentive structures that live around that. I think you touched on it there is that although law firms want to be as efficient and as great as possible, there is a flip side to it that um, they're also paid for time and for thinking and for exactly. so on. So how can, you know, how do those two things wrestle with one another? In the best will in the world, when the incentive structures are, are placed in a certain way, how can how can you say, if you use this, we've improved your time by 95%, then I, what do I do with myself if you've just taken 95% of my job? And what are we are, what are we going to be able to build clients? And I think that must be such a big limitation and driver, particularly in these larger firms, that the, particularly the ones that you're interviewing. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, another thing that we highlighted and that came through in lots of the workshops that we conducted was that there can be a lack of role modelling amongst senior stakeholders. They may not model that use of technology. And I think, as you've touched on, that kind of billing focus will come down to it. I think the the focus can be quite binary. Am I going to be able to charge for this? Is this going to bring me in, in money? And it can be difficult to think of technology in that way. But I think on the other side, when we talk to, to, to lawyers at firms, they think of it as you know, just a general improvement to the service that they're offering. Blending these technology solutions means that they run their deals better, there's less risk, they're able to do things to a higher standard. And that then means that they get more instructions. Clients are eager to see that kind of thing being done or certain clients are eager to, to see that kind of thing being done. And so it, it can have a, a massive benefit, but I think exactly right. If you're focused purely on, is this going to allow me to bill? It becomes very hard. And then also billing is changing. And there's a lot more fixed fee work. And if you're working towards a, an agreed fee, then anything that you can remove is just going to be money that you gain within that fee cap. I think it's quite interesting that because I, I seem to remember also, and why this series about transaction management was quite interesting, not only because of what we do, but, but generally from experience is that, that 
that part of the transaction, which is so highly considered being like the admin side of things, is often the bit that billable hours are are are, are shaved off from or, or written off, because it's trainees or associates' time that is actually or, or paralegals' time that is then written off as or the first thing that's written off, and that's for law firms removing that wastage is has got to be good and having people doing more meaningful billable work must have that commercial incentive for law firms too. Exactly. Just because it's billable doesn't mean that it's recoverable. And then also there's the element we're both recovering ex-lawyers and I'm sure you've had experience of working into the early hours of the night on something that just didn't feel necessary. So if you can remove that, it also increases the satisfaction of a junior lawyer who's able to instead focus on you know, drafting their first ever go at a shareholder agreement or putting something together where they can use the, the skills that they've learned at, at law school rather than perhaps just doing that that high pressure admin that's really stressful and also doesn't feel finally very useful. Dare I say it, helping business development activities. And, and things <laughs> yeah, that, absolutely. That, that, would, that uh, is, is, is increasingly a requirement of more junior lawyers, but you don't get the experience of doing that until you get thrown into the deep end when you're trying to make partner. But it's, uh, yeah, which is, which is I've found some, it's a topic for another conversation another day, I'm sure. But it, a, lot of, a lot has changed over the last 18 months, two years. And to what extent do you think that the outcomes of your report might have been different had COVID not happened. Commentators have said that we probably have seen a, a digital transformation in the legal sector that has fast-forwarded everything five to ten years. Given the research was, I'm guessing, part of it conducted prior to and some post-COVID, it would be interesting, was there a, like a difference in those meetings that you had with people and obviously somewhere in person, somewhere on Zoom calls probably, but was there definitely a, was there a step change of who was engaged on this? Yeah, I think it was definitely noticeable. And shout out to, to Bethany Sharrock, who's an associate of my team, who had to completely redesign the way we did workshops to, to push everything on Zoom, which meant that we had to embrace technology to a, to a greater extent. But I think, yeah, a lot of respondents talked about a culture shift that occurred as, as a result of the pandemic. And people pointed out that they were forced to start to get to grips with certain technology that they might not have had to use if, if it hadn't been um, for, for the pandemic. And I think if you're particularly if you're a senior stakeholder and you're very able to use all the, the tools that you've had available to you and you've been using for tens of years, if suddenly you're thrust into an environment where you can't carry out your business as usual activities without looking at Zoom, without looking at DocuSign, without looking at Teams, that then forces you to start to get to grips with more general legacy technology. And then I think what we found is that meant that people were then more open to other forms of technology. I think we saw people taking more of an interest in the more specific legal focused technologies that, that the report was concerned with. And I think it created kind of a virtuous cycle. Um, so people said, I've got to grips with Zoom. I'm used to seeing myself on the screen. I've started to execute my agreements with DocuSign. Why not look at an AI tool for contract review? Why not look at something for transaction management? Why not look at contract lifecycle management? Um, I think you could definitely track an increase as a result of those kind of questions. One of the things that you obviously were able to conduct this with some, you know, some some amazing law firms that you were able to do this with Herbert Smith, the LA Piper, Pinson Masons, Osborne Clark, Reed Smith, Evershed. Those are top law firms that that, that you were able to deal with. But being a, a top law firm, you also have large teams and resources, a healthy balance sheet, and a certain type of, of business that is able to potentially really invest in, in these types of things. Yet still there, the adoption isn't, isn't great. But your report obviously focuses around that and UK-centric. So I guess my 
question really is two parts really. Obviously there will be a difference, <laughs> but what kind of difference do you think would really be uh, meaningful if you looked, if you'd taken a six firms that have been a different spectrum of the industry, one and, and two, potentially how, how that might have been different or the responses from respondents might've been different if they'd been uh, in other jurisdictions, for example. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And in an ideal world, I could have devoted myself to talking to all the law firms and just produced a lengthy book on it. Um, <laughs> that is a uh, that is something that I don't wish upon anyone. But yes, <laughs> yeah, <could have> been. <laughs> yeah. But I think, yeah, I think you would definitely see differences. I think an interesting area which you could look at is looking at um, firms who are sm- who are focused on smaller work at, at higher volume, where the margin on the work that they're doing is smaller, and that includes firms that have you know sprung up in the last couple of years, challenger firms, things like Radiant Law and Stevenson Law, where they're very keen to maximise that margin on the, on the work that they're doing, and very eager to use a blend of tech in order to be able to produce that that product offering. I think if you were to to talk to them, I think you would see a much greater acceptance of tech, of a view that all kinds of legal technology are just business as usual competitive advantage and commitment amongst people at all levels to, to roll it out as, as much as they can. I think, yeah, I think it would be interesting to talk to them. On, on the flip side, I think you, you often need some kind of burning platform in order to use this technology, be it imperative from senior stakeholders, be imperative from the lawyers at the firm because they think that it drives such value. But I think the key one is, are clients demanding it? Is, is, are, you, are your bills getting paid? As you said, are you having to write off things? Are you not? And I think perhaps if you talk to particularly you know, transatlantic firms or legacy massive US firms, I think they will see less of a burning platform. I think they will, you know, be able to carry out the process they've been carrying out. They're still getting paid vast amounts. They're immensely profitable. So if someone tells to them, it's that classic thing of telling a room of millionaires that they need to change their business models, they're, they're probably thinking, really, do I? Because it's going pretty well for me at the moment. And you have to have sympathy with that perspective. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think looking at either end, it would be very interesting. And I think that the firms that we talked to were a brilliant collection because I think they have those elements in them they do massive work but also they you know start to also look at some of the more commoditized areas and looking at things at volume so it gave a good representation. I, I totally agree all of those firms are, are very progressive in, in their thinking for the sizes that they are a really good cross-section of firms to be talking to. So one of the things that, that you've touched on in the report is one of the res- resolutions or steps forward for them is firms is, is developing a digital strategy for a law firm. And I guess what's interesting is I see that parallel to when you talk more broadly around um, everyone having environmental strategies. It's like you have a strategy in place, but what does it actually mean? Who does, who's actually going to be responsible for it? And is it, how is it seen through and how is it kept accountable? And I just thought with the firms that you've, you've interacted with or talked about, how faithful to their strategy are they being? And how do you know in any extent how to what extent they're keeping themselves accountable for that. It's interesting because I, I think there's a spectrum. And I think you know, I'd, in, I'd include not just the firms in the report, but just generally the, the firms that I talked to as a result of working with the Gatics. Because I think there are lots of examples of, of firms where it is a key agenda item, but it's something which they back up with defined action. Everyone's appraisal has an area where they have to talk about you know, how they've innovated or how they've used the tools available to them. It's seen as like a key criteria for assessing partners, how much innovation is being used. And they feel generally commit, genuinely committed to thinking about ways in which they can transform their service for the 
the good of their clients. And I think that that is definitely in existence. I, I think also on the flip side, there are perhaps areas where although it's seen as uh, a key element or there's that that perception piece so people understand that it's key for their commercial success the support might be less developed so it might be harder to achieve that because if you sit if you talk about as you said the kind of esg agenda they might not have things put in place in order to achieve the target so there might not be a fully resourced innovation team so it means that associates have to fill the gap on top of their work and try and coordinate the use of a tool there may not be incentives that allow people to to explore the use of technology there may not be a culture of role modeling we've touched on that already but that certainly is a big thing the idea that partners should feel like that they have a role to play in making sure this is carried out and if that message isn't delivered then things can drop off and there isn't that accountability people just think well, I'll carry on doing it the, the way that I've done it before and I think yeah all, all those things come into play but there's definitely lots of examples of people doing really good work and being really committed to it sure so you've done all this research now <laughs> and you've touched on it a little bit already but I think it'd be I think it'd be really interesting not just for law firms who might want to participate in these kind of research exercises in the future for you or for anyone else but also for other legal tech companies as to how they might go about executing similarly insightful work but how has that could you give some examples of how that's the, the work that's happened over two years has directly influenced you've mentioned a bit but directly influenced what legatics now have as a platform and how quickly the impact of the research was felt by you guys internally yeah absolutely i think one part of it is just you've got a massive data set of things that people find challenging about the use of technology or things that people think could be done better which if you're in um the the business of of trying to get law firms to adopt technology is obviously a, a gold mine so in terms of an engagement perspective, we certainly rethought and are rethinking the way that we do things like carry out trading, because one of the, the points that we said was a barrier in the report is that um, lawyers often are frustrated by the training that they're given on tools. It can be too didactic. It can be too far away from the point of use. And so when they actually are wanting to get um, something up and running, they can often have forgotten how to use it. And then that support and easy access refresher materials is, isn't there. So that is something we've absolutely focused on. We're rolling out um, training that, that acknowledges that and trying to make sure that our support resources also provide as, as much support in getting people up and running and really focusing on practical adoption as possible. It's been a huge benefit. And I think also it allows us to, to really understand the challenges that law firms have. So when we are talking to innovation teams and, and stakeholders on that side of the business, we, we can understand the challenges that they're facing and, and really help or try to help them move past them. The other side of it is, we touched on at the beginning, the other half of the project, which is actually looking at producing practical technological solutions to some of these things, producing tech that is immediately usable. And Anthony, uh, CLR CEO, was very involved in, 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 that side of, in that side of the project. And there was a, a virtuous cycle in relation to that. We'd find things out on the research and we'd talk to the developers looking to build these microservices and make sure that the microservices that were being produced looked at these barriers and, and tried to move past them. So it was of an immense benefit on the engineering side. And I think hopefully people will see that when things are released on the technical side over the course of the next year. I'm, I'm sure they will. Dan, it's been a, a real pleasure really to talk about this report and I found it found incredibly useful to to be able to question you about it because it's rare that you get to do that Absolutely. but you know thanks for reading uh, about the author of a report uh, especially so soon after it's been released i feel very honored but it's been it's been really fascinating i think what's nice about it is it really 
it gives us a, a good coverage over some of the assumptions that you have as a person working in this field is like what's going on <laughs> and, and and clear insightful actionable items that you can take on any business that's looking to sell to law firms or any business selling to any large organizations and a lot of this rings true the adoption of technology i think is always going to be a barrier in a in an industry that prides itself into who they are and and what they think and there's Technology is not going to replace the lawyer. That's I'm definitely sure about that. But it's it's going to go some way to make the life of lawyers slightly better, and maybe make people like you and I stay in the profession, at least act, practicing the profession for longer than they might have done. So again, thank you very much for your time, and I encourage we'll share in the links in the in this the report for other people to read. And I'm sure Dan would love to hear from anyone who would uh, who'd like to talk to him in more detail about it. I would indeed, and yeah, I'm available on LinkedIn, would love it if you read the report and then feel free to fire any questions that, that Jeff hasn't covered, although I'm sure there aren't many and we can talk about it <laughs> offline. Great. Thanks very much, Dan. Perfect. Thanks, Bye. Jeff. It was a pleasure. We worked hard for putting this together and hope that you have found this interesting. If you like this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss the next one. We would also, of course, be grateful if you could give us a good rating and share it with your friends or colleagues. If you would like to get in contact and provide some positive criticism, or you would like to find out more about the services ShieldPay has to offer, please head over to shieldpay.com, where you'll find a Contact Us page and lots of useful additional resources. Thank you for listening, and goodbye for now.